The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back. This is Strict Scrutiny, a podcast so fierce, it's fatal in fact. And this is a very special episode. June 15th, we are talking about a new opinion that we just got from the court. Highly anticipated. So I'm Melissa Murray, and I'm joined today by... I'm Kate Shaw. Hey, Melissa. Hey. And I'm Leah Littman. And we're going to talk about this new opinion that we got in those trio of Title VII cases, Bostock, Zarda, and Stevens. So, Kate, you want to kick us off? Sure. So listeners will obviously be familiar with these cases. These are three cases, two raising the question of whether uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is prohibited by Title VII, which is the big federal anti-discrimination law, uh, which contains, among other things, a prohibition on sex discrimination. So two cases asking whether sexual orientation discrimination violates Title VII, and then a third case asking whether uh, discrimination on the basis of gender identity also violates Title VII. So these were argued back in October, so we had a feeling they would be coming down any day now. Um, And I think it was kind of anybody's guess how the cases were going to come down. But in a big sweeping win for these discrimination plaintiffs uh, this morning, an opinion issued by Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, for a 6-3 majority that included the liberal justices and then also the chief justice uh, found in pretty broad and categorical terms uh, that this discrimination violates Title VII. So uh, a big win. But Gorsuch, right? But Gorsuch. So we will have a fuller episode um, on Monday like we usually do, but we wanted to quickly recap some facets of the opinion, um, its possible implications, as well as some of the technical difficulties that the court had sharing the opinion with us <laughs> this morning. <laughs> um, so The refresh uh, button what? heard round the world. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Do we want to start with those technical yeah, difficulties can we, can and then do the there? opinion? Can we just start there? Like, Oh, my God. Like, you are grown-ass adults. Why can't you get this opinion loaded? What is going – I it was so frustrating. So what Melissa is alluding to is Supreme Court reporters and other people start tweeting and saying the plaintiffs in the Title VII cases have won. We are all refreshing the court's website. Everyone tried to open the opinion. At some point, you could only get the first page of the opinion – 
at other points, nothing, nothing of the opinion would load and it would just give you a blank screen. This lasted for upwards of an hour, maybe 35 minutes. No, longer um, than that. Longer than that. Well, different people were getting access at different times. I got the first page very quickly. And so I did see that it was a win for the plaintiffs. But um, all you get, the first page is just the syllabus, right? Which is pre- prepared not by the justices or their chambers, but the reporter's office. And you don't ever want to rely on what's in a syllabus because there could be an error in it. It might not properly characterize the decision. But here it seemed pretty clear that it was both sexual orientation and gender identity, both, yes, Title VII violation, but no author identified, no vote breakdown. It was like a half of the first page. So I felt like I I did think I knew how the opinion came down, but I didn't, we didn't know who the author was or anything else. And so, um, and then somehow people were getting access to a little bit of the opinion. And so we're screenshotting excerpts. So then quickly we all realized, okay, this is a Gorsuch opinion. And okay, this is a 6-3 opinion. And then finally, around like 1020 or 1030, uh, we got access to the full 172 pages and all of all of its glory. So that may have had something to do with, you know, this is an unprecedented experiment. I think the court is engaged in doing everything remotely. Well, so partially the fact that maybe that many people were interested in and wanted to read the opinion, but also partially the fact that Justice Alito wrote a 100 page opinion, including this exceptionally lengthy appendix in which he included lists of statutes that might be implicated by the court's opinion, as well as screen or, you know, images of draft cards. Um, Justice Alito, by the way, was screamingly mad in this dissent. Yeah, yeah. Um, This was what they say. As as you would say, a vehement dissent from Justice Alito. <laughs> um, yeah, in which he he likened the majority opinion to a quote pirate ship. Yes, Arr. yes, that was amazing. That was um, it comes under a textualist flag, but it's really a pirate ship because because the majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch right really is a self consciously uh, purportedly textualist opinion right it very much adopts the framing that the plaintiff's lawyers i would say in particular Pam Carlin uh, served up to the court which is that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is always bound up inextricably with sex discrimination and the words of the statute themselves answer the entire question of the case and justice Gorsuch in a way that i couldn't tell if it was kind of sincere or trolling but cited justice Leah quite a bit, including some that of his That was the treated- part, I think, that's where he lost it. Like, I think that's what set off Alito. I, I, I don't totally. think it was trolling. I mean, I actually think it was a fair comparison. I mean, just didn't Justice Scalia write on call? Yes. Oh, oh absolutely. No, the right. citations so, I mean, on, call are, are on call are, I think, required in the decision. But there are a couple of citations to his treatise reading statutes. Uh, and those, those I think, were the, the references that Alito was responding to when he sort of raised this, you know, false flag objection to the Gorsuch opinion. So one of the things that the majority opinion does, and I think does really well, is to sort of say, like, this isn't a frolic. This is sort of in keeping with the way the court has interpreted this statute in the past. So they cite to Phillips um, versus Martin Marietta, which was a motherhood discrimination statute. Um, There is Manhart, which is about women being charged more for pension contributions than men. And then Ancal, which is about a a man on an oil rig being subjected to sexual harassment by his colleagues because he is not, quote unquote, manly enough. And that was written by Justice Scalia. And you know, he, I think Justice Gorsuch is right. Um, if you take all of those precedents into account, it's not like the court is going really far out on a limb here to say that although this isn't what 
the drafters might have had in mind in 1964 when they wrote um, that Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, it certainly is in keeping with the spirit of the text because this is a form of sex-based discrimination, which, which I think is a, you know, a fair way to read the opinion. Um, my husband and I were going back and forth on this, like, would Justice Scalia have come down in favor of this well, the opinion? Well, despite- the opinions are going back and forth on this, too. You know, you noted yes. Justice Gorsuch cites Scalia's treatise. Then the Alito dissent and the Kavanaugh dissent are like, well, Justice Scalia, the author of textualism, would not have done that, right? And, like, they cite his opinions. And, like, they are explicit in invoking what would Justice Scalia have done, which is kind of an odd approach for a textualist. Like, it's not how would well, I read the statute I, I think according it's about to its sexual terms. orientation. I mean, yeah. like Justice Scalia was not in the majority in Obergefell, like, you know, had that blistering dissent in Lawrence. Unclear whether he would have been in Gorsuch's camp, textualism or no, in this particular decision. And they both seem to be fighting over his legacy. Like, what does it mean to be a textualist in, in the mode of a Justice Scalia? And, you know, According to Justice Gorsuch, maybe it doesn't mean much at all. Like, you know, maybe it's more like the legacy of Justice Gorsuch as a textualist now that really holds sway. Or maybe he would say that sort of at his best, on his best days, Justice Scalia, I think, acting in a principled fashion would have joined the Gorsuch majority here. But that, you know, especially in the last 10 or 15 years of his time on the court, when I think that he kind of did stray from these methodological commitments in favor of a more kind of outcome driven um yeah. type of analysis, I think so. So maybe it depends on which Justice Scalia we're asking about. And that's actually why they're talking past each other when invoking Justice Scalia in their respective opinions. But that was definitely a fascinating um, undercurrent in the case. Um, one thing I will say is, you know, I it's striking that none of the liberals saw any need to write a separate concurrence, right? There was so little space between what Justice Gorsuch authored. And I think what any of them... I, the style, of course, like the sort of ponderousness at points, like that is a pure vintage corsage. But the substance is what they would have written. But but I think that's just like Obergefell. Well, maybe yes. not quite. Um, you know, they all kind of they wanted to speak in one voice about yes. this, um, and then you know, in, in Obergefell, like the one voice was one that was really pro marriage in a court where. Not everyone was married at that moment. (laughs) And, you know, they just kind of went along with it. And maybe, like, that's what you needed to do in order to get the chief. I mean, this was a 6-3 opinion. Like, maybe their silence was part of whatever negotiations took place in order to get the chief to come on board. So so you think – so the chief – you think is the one who is who is more in question. I mean, as opposed to Gorsuch being up in the air and the chief assigning him the opinion to write himself convinced, you know, like, I guess those are two possible theories of why the chief doesn't keep the opinion for himself. I agreed with you all when we talked about this earlier. I agreed with you all that, you know, Gorsuch looked like he was sort of the person in play and the discussion about the bathroom at oral argument made him look a little wobbly. Um, But I thought the chief was very firmly in the conservative camp on this. So that actually, to me, was the most surprising part Mm. of this decision. Yeah, I totally agree, especially because Justice Kavanaugh's dissent, I think, was very similar in tone and in substance to the chief justice's dissent from Obergefell. Some things are obvious. Water is wet. All roads lead to somewhere, and paying half price for pizza is better than paying full price. This week at Domino's is half-off pizza week. Get 50% off all menu-priced Domino's pizzas. What's for dinner? The choice is obvious. Get half-off pizza at Domino's during half-off pizza week now until June 9th. Select this offer online only at participating locations. Prices, participation, delivery area, and charges may vary. Offer applies to pizza portion of your order only. 
This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. What makes eHarmony so special? You. No, really. The profiles and conversations are different on eHarmony, and that's what makes it great. eHarmony's compatibility quiz brings out everyone's personality on their profile and highlights similarities on your discovery page. So it's even easier to start a conversation that actually goes somewhere. So what are you waiting for? Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. You know, a, a couple of other things to flag, I would say, you know, it did feel to me as though even though Gorsuch talks about the employer's arguments, he's talking about the employers and also the solicitor general's office's arguments. Right. And, and you know, the SG made this sort of odd argument that if you treated everyone equally badly, you discriminated against both gay men and women on the basis of sexual orientation. That would show that you were not engaging in sex discrimination. And, you know, he has this line in which he says an employer who fires both lesbians and gay men equally doesn't diminish but doubles their liability. And that did seem like squarely responding to the SG's argument. Um, and I haven't seen any statement yet out of the Department of Justice or the Trump administration, but um, I really, I'm sure you are as well, are like just wondering what is going on internally as they respond to this decision. I'm sure the Civil Rights Division is just celebrating this decision <laughs> off the charts. They're so Why? thrilled. <laughs> Well, I mean, just think about what happened last Friday when HHS released those regulations rolling back protections under the ACA for transgendered person. I mean, a lot of the logic of those regulations was identical to the logic of their arguments narrowing employment protections for transgender workers in this case. So, I mean, the fact that the court has put the kibosh on it here arguably calls into question the same narrowing that we're seeing across other statutory contexts. Oh, I think clearly calls into question that rule that was issued last week. Yeah, if not like facially invalidates it. So uh, maybe there'll have to be some litigation or maybe they just pull it down. I'm, I, I, honestly, I don't I'm think not, they pull it down. I think you go back to court. But it, and then it falls very quickly. I don't think there's any other way. I mean, the the, the one other thing maybe to flag that I, I sort of was waiting for the kind of, you know, where is the language that sort of parallels the Obergefell language about sort of protection for religious conscience and objections, right? And so, and there is a passage in this, in the Bostic opinion that looks somewhat like the Kennedy um, passage, sort of reiterating support for religious liberty and kind of reserving future questions about the intersection of the constitutional holding in that case and the statutory holding here with religious liberty objections, but does say some sort of disconcerting things, calls RIFRA a super statute that might supersede the commands of Title VII, you know, might, not does, but but does signal that religious objections, um, which were not actually before the court in these cases, even though the funeral home in the Harris case did raise those uh, claims below, that those objections might fare well before this court um, in a follow-on 
Elon case. So it's it's interesting because right now, you know, I'm just like I have one eye on the television screen, and you know, the media is really trumpeting this as a win for gay rights. And you know, I think you know, I don't want to be the turd in the punch bowl who's like, but wait, um, like it is a win. It, it's a really important case. It's a really important victory. But there's a lot buried in this opinion that I think could surface later in much more troubling and problematic ways. I mean, in the the same way, like I was a turd in the punch bowl about Obergefell, like saying, you know, like, I'm not sure that Obergefell is... um, I thought you said you didn't want to be a turd in the punch bowl, Melissa. I I mean, I I, I just, again, I'm just sort of like this sort of over the top, you know, like woke Neil Gorsuch. I don't think that's warranted here. And I, I think it is a victory, but... You know, it's the beginning of June. There's more stuff coming and there's more room, I think. And I think there's room in this opinion to sort of narrow some of these gains. And I think that's worth thinking about as well. And you know, someone asked me, is, is, this as, is this as important a decision as Obergefell? And, you know, I, I think it is as important. I mean, I, I think grown-up adults are more likely to have jobs, like, perhaps than get married and, you know, like, are more likely to need the economic security that employment provides. And for a lot of people in states where they don't have state-level anti-discrimination protections for sexual orientation or transgender identity, Title VII is the only game in town. And certainly that may be even doubly so for federal workers. So this is huge, but there's, dig into this opinion, and I think you will find the seeds for sowing more trouble in the future. I think that that's right. Um, and, you know, we don't have a ton of time right now, but the implications of this decision are something that I'm sure we will be talking more about when we do a longer in-depth recap. I kind of feel like one more thing from the dissent, though, in terms of the sort of implications of this opinion. So Alito just kind of can't help himself. Um, it's a little bit like the Scalia dissent from Windsor in which he's like, you know, so, so the Defense of Marriage Act or part of it has fallen. And it's just, you know, it's like a hop, skip and a jump to marriage equality being mandated by the Constitution. And like, you know, he writes a dissent that sort of paves, you know, it was going to happen regardless, but the dissent, I think, helps challengers uh, to state laws that at the time prohibited um, uh, same-sex marriage. So Alito a little bit is sort of calling out this parade of horribles, and in, and in one part of the opinion, um, he says, okay, this is a statutory holding, but it seems like it ha- there are seeds of sort of constitutional logic in it, such that claims, you know, constitutional claims that sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination violate the Equal Protection Clause seem like on the logic of this opinion would be hard to reject. And that, I think, is right, actually. There's a lot of constitutional equal protection logic in the opinion that I think could be extremely helpful to discrimination plaintiffs in other spheres. So, like, hold up on that for a minute. So I I think so. someone was saying on Twitter that that logic could lead to sort of finding that sexual orientation or transgender identity was entitled to intermediate scrutiny. Unclear Mm -hmm. if that's better or worse. Like, so my colleague at Berkeley, Russell Robinson, wrote this great piece in Stanford a couple of years ago, Unequal Protection, where, you know, he notes that a lot of the victories for gay plaintiffs have been under this rational basis with bite standard. And it's just more elastic and contextual and can lead you to the same outcomes, but without hemming you in the way that the tiers of scrutiny can. And he was of the view, and I I think he might be right, that it's almost better to be outside of the traditional tiers of scrutiny and equal protection logic. So I don't know, maybe it's like if the seeds of intermediate scrutiny are being laid here, maybe it's not a good thing at all. 
But there are still laws on the books in states on things like adoption right. that yeah. I think that 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 ratcheting up the level of scrutiny in a formal way, it couldn't hurt the strength of those claims. Like how much it helps, I think might be an open question, but it's hard for me to see how it hurts. But 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 it's that's well, that's but I think what it would it would it would hurt is it might call into question laws that are designed to remedy past discrimination exactly. in the same yeah. way that anti-classification principles have limited the ability to adopt race conscious um, measures. But yes, yeah, so this the the Alito dissent had all kinds of Scalia vibes in it, you know, partially in tone. You know, you mentioned Scalia's Windsor dissent, also the Lawrence dissent mm-hmm. where he said, you know, well, mm-hmm. you know, this is paving the way to gay marriage. And it wasn't just the possible implications in constitutional cases where, you know, the majority opinion is saying all these things about how it's impossible to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation without discriminating on the basis of sex, which might trigger heightened scrutiny, but also in its implications for other statutes where, again, Justice Alito just like lists all of these statutes. It's like, OK, prospective plaintiffs, are you interested in potentially challenging mm-hmm. any of these? <laughs> right. I did this great research project outlining this litigation strategy for you. He was obviously sort of spitting mad and obviously the crazy lengthy appendix is evidence of that. It seems obvious to me that he would have dissented from the bench had this happened in normal times, right? So he would have given Not a only bench would statement. he have dissented from the bench, he would have lit Justice Gorsuch's opinion on fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like or just spit torn it up it, like Nancy Pelosi style out, like, in the State of the Union. Rip he it, rip probably it up. has it as toilet paper in his chambers right now. <laughs> like just all kinds of craziness. But it did make me wonder about like what alternative expressive channels, like right. really, really angry dissents, including, you know, others we yeah. could see in the next couple of weeks um, might pursue. Like, could we see justices cut like bench statement videos <laughs> and like circulate those? A like, TikTok, Justice Alito's yes! TikTok. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. A Justice Alito TikTok. I am loving this, you know, because like all they have thus uh, thus far is to crash the Supreme Court's website with like crazy right. long appendices. <laughs> oh, that would be the best if he was like, you, you, you will never get this opinion because right. I am secretly at home preventing you from doing it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, That's what but as, as sad as and angry as Sam Alito was, I think uh, is as happy as some of us might be feeling, because even though, you know, this opinion is certainly not going to solve all problems um, of discrimination, it is an important victory um, uh, for individuals to have protections in the workplace and elsewhere. Yes. So anything else or should we call that a wrap? I'm sure we'll do more on the regular weekly episode, but I think for this first installment of an emergency uh, emergency <laughs> podcast episode um i think we got to call it a day here um but good to see you guys good to see you guys and congrats to everybody who worked unbelievably hard on this case um it was yeah. a really transformational effort and i hope everyone stops to sort of spend a little bit of time with that victory thank you to our producer, Melody Rowell, for quickly turning around this episode. Thank you to Eddie Cooper for making our music. And thank you to you all for listening. And thank you to Justice Gorsuch for creating the occasion for this <laughs> emergency <laughs> emergency session. And thank you to Pam Carlin, as Justice Alito called her prominent constitutional law professor in his dissent. We'll talk more about that on the regular episode. <laughs> See you next time, everybody. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. 
That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show from real life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat. Come to life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.